Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Amy Mitchell, the Founding Executive Director of the Center for News, Technology, and Innovation, which was launched earlier this year as a global research nonprofit based in the United States to study key issues concerning the future of journalism, including artificial intelligence, disinformation, and new and evolving business models. I'm grateful to speak with her as part of our ongoing Future of News series, to discuss how innovation and technology are transforming journalism, the role of public policy to support the news media, and how we can ultimately cultivate a pluralistic and diverse news media ecosystem. Amy, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the Center for News, Technology, and Innovation itself. It involves an impressive group of people, including Marty Barron, who listeners will know was the first guest in our Future of News series. Amy, why was the center established? What's its mission? And what does it do? So the center was established to work on creating better informed internet media policy discussions around the world. And it is it is seeking to do that um, in a way that safeguards an independent news media and the public's access to news through an open internet. Those are essential to functioning societies around the world, as I see it, and our board and advisors see it. In many cases today, there are uh, policies, whether legislative or organizational, that even in well-intended cases are putting those things at risk. In my own work as a researcher, it was I was leading the research at Pew Research Center for many years before I took on this new role. I felt that not only were we not making progress in addressing the issues that we as a global society were facing around the digital news landscape, but in many cases we're going backwards and that we needed to hit the pause button and figure out a better way to do that. What that entails around the mission of CNTI is really fourfold in terms of one, being collaborative. We have got to all get in the room and have conversations together. That needs to include journalists, people in technology, leaders in research, in civil society, and policymakers. Too often, each of those conversations is is happening separately uh, in, in siloed rooms or siloed conversations. And we have to find people in all of these groups that care enough about the issue, even if they don't all agree on every element of them, care about the importance of uh, an independent press and an open internet for people to have access to news and finding ways forward to create better solutions to do that. The second is to have a global outlook. 
we are, yes, passing laws and we have media systems that are within our own country, but the internet does not have those geographic boundaries. Our news environment in reality doesn't. And the policy that gets passed ultimately does not either. Policy that gets passed is, is both impacted by and impacts much of what can happen in other parts of the world. The, the third is to be comprehensive. As you may have seen, if you took a little look on our website, um, it's not a small list of issues to address. <laughs> we, we have 15 uh, priority issues. And, and the reason why I felt, um, and, and, and those involved with CNTI felt it was important to have that full list is because even as each deserves its own time and attention and is important, they all interrelate. If you're talking about the use of AI and managing the benefits of AI and guarding against the harms and news, that relates to transparency, um, algorithmic transparency. It relates to questions around copyright. It relates to disinformation. So it's really important that we are aware and we think about these as a global challenge um, broadly, as opposed to individual issues to try to um, check, put a check mark, you know, alongside and say, okay, we got that one. Now let's move on to the next because it just doesn't work that way. And then the fourth um, is to be a resource, uh, which involves both bringing together and synthesizing um, data, research that's out there, as well as doing our own research and trying to help um, be a place that people can turn to to become better informed about these issues themselves. We'll come to many of the topics that you just set out, Amy, but I want to stay on the subject of your list of priority issues, which includes algorithmic accountability, economic support for news, information and cybersecurity, news engagement and innovation, open distribution and access, and online harms and disinformation. How did you come to select these priorities and what are you hoping to achieve within them? Well, there are, in general, they fall into um, six sort of core issue areas. And within those, we felt that there were then these individual issues um, that are important to address. So if you think about the six areas, it is algorithmic accountability. There are a lot of questions within that, right? How, how, how much is it, is it safe? Is it good to let be known to the general public? Are there barriers around who actually would have access to that kind of um, transparency? The second is economic support for news. That's a huge part of the challenge that's being faced today within the news ecosystem. Information and cybersecurity. Hopefully we'll talk more about that as well. The safety of journalists is a, is a, is a increasingly um, critical problem uh, across many different parts of the world today. Online harms of disinformation, open distribution and access, news engagement, um, and innovation. And it's interesting, some of these are really at, you know, we're, they're having very sort of involved policy conversations in many parts of the world. Others are not so much about policy, but are, are very much tied to these things. Take news relevance, for example. That's one of our 15 priority issue areas. One could pass all the policy in the world, but it doesn't matter if the people that that news is being created for don't see it as relevant and important. One of the things that we've discovered in Canada in recent years is that there isn't a lot of public policy capacity when it comes to thinking about the future of news. That's not a criticism of the government per se. It partly reflects the fact that the traditional business model 
worked for a long time and didn't require much policy attention. It's also self-evidently challenging to try to anticipate or predict what the interaction between news, technology, and innovation, the core areas of your center, will ultimately produce. In that sense, talk about the gaps that the center is aiming to fill and how we can build up policy capacity to understand and better support the future of journalism. Take, for example, a question around, um, you know, what people are talking about when it comes to use of AI in news, or really it's any in any of these areas. But the question of definitions, uh, a lot of times as, as policies are starting to get um, debate proposed, debated, discussed, there's a red flag event that in many cases, at least in this arena, has spurred that. Um, policy discussion, and there's a desire to um, be able to put something forward, to get it through, to to to, to react. And and what um, I think needs to happen is to pause and take the time to really make sure that all of those important elements of what would go into a policy are are being talked about prior to the policy being voted on or being, you know, what gets really put forward as as what it, what will be voted on. Um, and something like definitional considerations isn't the the the, the sexiest topic to have a, a, a session around, but is really important. How does one define journalism? How is a journalist defined? How do we define a news publisher? If there's going to be uh, a policy that is going to be around you know, economic, you know, support for news, who decides and how does, how, what is the definition deciding what goes into that? And then what's that third party or, or whoever that oversight structure is that makes that decision? Those kinds of uh, discussions are really important to have thoroughly and in advance. And with all of those different parts of the system, involved in those conversations because each brings different knowledge uh, to that table and to the conversation to help create what is going to ultimately serve the public the best. On that point, one of the most interesting parts of your model is that you've brought voices, as you set out earlier, from large traditional news outlets, smaller digital independents, technologists themselves, academics, representatives from civil society, and so on. This is obviously important for bringing different perspectives to bear on the issues facing the sector. However, if the Canadian experience is any indication, there may be irreconcilable differences of opinion based on their interests and perspectives. How have you found the engagement thus far, and how will CNTI work through potential differences across stakeholders? So we had our um, we had our first convening. You know, so so it. One of the things of CNCI is about both producing um, and synthesizing research. The second element of that is to then use that research and the things like the primers to be the foundation for convenings, to have these kinds of conversations, and then to put out, you know, the takeaways from those convenings. Uh, we held our first issue, you know, focus convening uh, in October in around the issue of AI and news um, sort of seems to be topical these days. Uh, and it was focused around this question of definitional uh, considerations. What goes in that bucket? What do we, what are the important things to, around 
um, defining inputs and outputs throughout the system? Where does one thing become go from be, being a benefit to being a harm or vice versa? Um, and we were able to have in the room, we did, we hosted it, you know, it's really important that people feel um, a trust in that room. Uh, you know, there's not been a lot of these kinds of really collaborative conversations um, to date. And so it was really important to us that we make sure people feel um, comfortable talking and that everybody in the room is respected. And so there's a what I kind of refer to as a modern Chatham House rule. We release the names of all the participants. That's very important to be able to be transparent about. We put a report out about it. We did put some quotes in that report and we have pictures, but we did not directly attribute quotes to any individual. So I can say that we had um, high level either IP or um, uh, uh, legal uh, representatives from Microsoft, from Google, from OpenAI. We had the Associated Press lead international reporter, Grant Burke, who wrote their AI sort of use and policy manual. We had um, two individuals, one from Brazil and one from uh, Nigeria, who, start, who started some of their sort of really strong independent digital only news outlets in those regions. Um, being able to bring in that global perspective and talk about that. We had a lead copyright um, uh, researcher and an expert from Oxford that was there. It was a, I mean, a terrific mix of individuals, a woman from Ukraine who's the head of ethics and partnership for Respeacher, who actually just wrote a guest essay um, for us in our most recent newsletter on her personal experiences. It was, the conversation was wonderful. Uh, it was about two and a half hours. Um, if anything, you know, we felt like we had a really specific, you know, agenda here. And if anything, it was still too packed. We could have spent, you know, the whole two and a half hours on two of the two or three questions, let alone what we put forward. Um, but I felt that um, everybody seemed to really appreciate the opportunity to have that conversation, walked around with, walked around, walked out with more insights than they went into the room with. Um, and heard from people that they, you know, likely may not have been able to have conversations with in the past. We're looking to have the next um, uh, session on AI will be around that sort of what is the, what are the important considerations around that oversight structure uh, for that any kind of policy, um, but in particular looking at it within AI. You mentioned earlier, Amy, the decision for the center to have a global mandate. I'd note that you have Canadians like Sue Gardner and David Wamsley involved in the project. Elaborate on what was behind the decision to have a global focus and what you're finding so far in terms of the extent to which the issues and experiences are common or contingent across different jurisdictions. It's so important to have it be global. And I have, that has been reaffirmed in my mind over and over and over again these last few months as I've been talking with people. Um, as I said earlier, the impacts of the, of, of the, uh, of policy is global, even if it's passed within a, within one geographic area. But as we think about these issues, there's also uh, uh, there's two other elements that I would speak to. One is that if you pass a policy, take the Australia uh, media bargaining policy there, that language, we're actually in the middle of doing some research right now that is sort of looking at language within these different policies. 
much of that language carried verbatim over into policies that got passed in many other countries. So you are setting a standard and that can be used in countries where say the government has a much more control um, or lack of respect for press freedom than in a country where it was initially passed. So it's very important to understand the way that a policy or, or again, whether legislative or not, but that decisions that get made in one country can really have impacts elsewhere in a way that are, are, are not what the original intended also. But the other is, if you think in an issue, even like media sustainability, uh, I was talking with some folks who are in um, various parts of Africa. They're like, media sustainability for us, give us cybersecurity. Like we need to figure out how to have our journalists be safe in reporting. So in on the question of AI, a lot of folks in, again, in parts of Africa and Nigeria, they're not getting their news digitally yet. I say yet with, you know, an assumption that much of the world is eventually moved digital, but there's a lot that's still offline. So how do the benefits, how does one make those benefits of AI technology or ability be able to go offline and be distributed in different ways? So being thoughtful about that just sheds so much more light, so much light on the the complexity of the issue, but also the 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 really important considerations around the vastness of our digital space. I'll offer one more example of something like this. Uh, one of the issue areas we have is, is around guarding against the development of, of what are referred to as splinter nets, sort of cordoned off information silos. And, you know, when we were having a conversation in our, in our country about, um, you know, potentially banning TikTok, um, you think, well, there are countries that would love to see that happen and say, oh, see, yeah, now we're, we're going to ban, you know, whatever, the BBC, the New York Times. So being thoughtful about the the fullness of our digital society and and working to make in the space of technology, the the uses and benefits of that technology have more parity in in the availability of both the use and the benefits of this technology is is really important. Hey Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry, we've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. You mentioned earlier, Amy, the recent event that the center hosted with journalists and technologists to discuss the opportunities and challenges posed by AI for journalism. What in your mind are some of the biggest opportunities and threats that the center and others need to consider when it comes to artificial intelligence and its implications for the news media? There's much on both in terms of the benefits and the potential harms. Like most technology, along with potential benefits come potential harms. 
there just are that that's just the way these things tend to work so it's impossible to say we're not going to have any of that so the question is how do we balance those and how do we recognize how do we recognize what those potentials are? I, I do think a lot of conversation that's happening around the use of AI in news now is really about these just very um, specific inside the newsroom uses that are going to replace just what we're doing now, as opposed to thinking about how could we do our reporting different? What are what are the opportunities to actually? do something different or better or get into areas where journalists can't get now to get that information out. This is, again, something that um, Anna Gulak, who's the Ukrainian woman that wrote this guest essay, um, wrote about in learning from that um, the the maiden um, uh, war earlier in, in this century in Ukraine and what they learned about the use of technology and really using it to empower as opposed to being the ones taken advantage of when it comes to getting out news to folks. So how, how, where are the creative ways to think about how this can really serve the public well in terms of getting news out? Where are their opportunities? And, and hopefully there'll be a good part of that, of, of conversation that goes in that direction. Um, there are some really creative things that are being, you know, tried and tested and played with, but I think I think should be a bigger part of that conversation with that broader thought of serving the public, serving the public fact-based news. Um, I think provenance is becoming, you know, a pretty big part of that, of, of what's important there is being able to identify and being sure the public um, for sure can identify where that news and information is coming from. Um, you know, in, in the harms, there's, a, there's, Obviously, I guess I say obviously, but the you know the question of disinformation and being able to verify is critical, and that is going to, in my view, be a really big part of the future of how we make sense of all of the news and information that's floating around us today. How can we create systems and tools and use uh, uh, technology and ourselves? to be able to really distinguish that. I think that that's one of the, the continuing elements that we're going to need to tackle. You mentioned earlier that another priority area is the economic health of journalism. How have you and your colleagues come to think about that question? For instance, what does it mean for news to be a public good versus a market product? And how does one's answer to that question influence possible policy responses including not responding at all, which itself is a possible response? Well, I mean, there's, I think the question of a market, not sure exactly how you would phrase that, but a market um, dynamic versus not is, maybe another way to think about it is, what does it mean to have a sustainable news media going forward? Finances are certainly one of them. Um, and that that's important. Figuring out a viable revenue structure um, is essential. Most news it varies by country and certain you know, but there's much that's they're commercial entities. So figuring out the dis how the disrupt disruption of technology can be um, uh, addressed to think about new ways to have revenue structures that's critical. Beyond that, though, there's a lot of other elements that go into a sustainable news media. 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, the safety, not only of journalists themselves, which is crucial, but of the data structures. And a part of that is, is being sure that sources feel safe being coming to a news outlet and sharing what information they may have. Um, securing the freedom of the press. We're seeing those scores going down worldwide, including inside democracies. So how sustainability also means having that independence to be able to do your job. Another is being relevant. As, as we talked about before, one could have all the money in the world to report news or whatever, but if you're not seen as relevant, especially in the digital era, where the choices that the public has are are vast, and it, that that requires news organizations to actually do more work to say we, we matter, and here's why you should get you know get news get 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 fact based news that that we're producing. But those are all, and then the public having access to that. So those are all a part of creating a sustainable model for journalism and news media going into the future. And the final one I'd add is, is, is the ability to adapt to the changing dynamics, which will happen forever. One of the inherent challenges in possible policy interventions to support new sustainability is, as you outlined earlier, Amy, defining journalism in general and high quality in particular. A primer produced by CNTI warns that any model that is, quote, content neutral, that is to say, which seeks to maintain neutrality and who qualifies support, risks public funding going to disinformation. Talk about the tension here and the possible policy consequences. Is it possible in your mind to build a consensus around what is high quality journalism? It's a really important question. Uh, and it gets again to, to how would you define this in policy? And, and then one, how do you define it? Two, who makes that decision about arbitrating that definition. Um, critically important. And in many cases, the policies around disinformation to date have focused on that negative, not on the positive. So they're focused on um, saying, it, it, often without even a definition then, but things that are false, things that are wrong, as opposed to defining the quality um, or, or fact-based nature of news. If you're a researcher studying news content, that's actually something researchers have had to grapple with because in many cases, we're making decisions about what goes in or out of a study, what gets included and what doesn't get included. And, and so then there are often, you know, whether well hopefully there always are very um, specific methodological criteria, such as if you look at the website over the course of a month, they've got, you know, Five out of six of their lead stories are doing original reporting. The mix of sources goes from this to this. They're transparent about their funding there. So there are things that you can put in. I would say actually looking to the research community can be helpful in helping to establish some of those. Um, but it's also really important that those definitions get into the policy and that whoever's making those decisions get made because get 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 clearly thought through and articulated in a way that safeguards the um, in safeguards the definitions, the intent of those definitions and of the news media. That's a great answer, Amy. You mentioned earlier that a big part of your career was spent at the Pew Research Center, which among other various lines of research, 
studies trends with respect to the public's trust of institutions, including journalism. What do you think explains the low trust that citizens seem to have for journalism? And what can be done to reverse it? How does that question influence your new work at CNTI? The trust of the public is a is a major challenge facing news organizations today, but as you say, also facing many institutions. Um, so I'd start by saying, in general, many parts of the world, not all, but many, um, certainly in the U.S., um, certainly in the U.S., there has been a decline in in trust of and respect for institutional authority in general. Uh, the news media is certainly one of those, and and there are many that it coincides with a number of other factors at play. One is that when you create a digital news media space, where which one of the benefits that technology has brought is by allowing a lot of new kinds of entrants into that space, whether it's news organizations focused on giving voice to uh, underserved communities, whether it's small, very topically ranked, you know, going deep on one topic, small geographic areas. Um, but but there's greater choice for the public that naturally demands, um, creates more competition, uh, creates more competition in, in, in being able to um, uh, gain the trust and res- and be a respected source that people make a choice to turn to. There's also much news in the digital space that comes at people. Uh, one of the big shifts that happened was, you know, rather than feeling like I, the consumer, need to go out and find my news and decide where to go, it's going to come to me. Um, that is another layer um, of challenge that gets put on the news media. Uh, and then there's the question of connection to the public. One of the things that we saw over and over and over again in the data is that that feeling, that sense of connection that the journalists doing the reporting about my area or the news that I get understand me, they understand my community, that is essential or a major part of trust and um and and real, you know, dedicated use of news, it's also to a large degree, in many cases, lacking. So how do do newsrooms and journalists create that greater sense of connection with the public that they're seeking to serve? Another one of CNTI's primers talks about the limits of one-size-fits-all policy actions and the need to promote a pluralistic, diverse, and innovative media ecosystem. How does the notion of pluralism influence the center's work and how should it, in your mind, inform any public policy responses by governments? I think the first place to start with pluralism is understanding that, that there are differences. And that's the, the, the first layer of what CNTI is trying to do. And you can hopefully see that in the ways that these primers are designed, which is, um, you know, to lay out the complexity of the issue when it comes specifically to these questions of an independent um, news media and, and 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 open access to news, and part of those complexities are how the dynamics are different in different parts of the world, and and that there isn't necessarily a one size fits all. So then, in thinking about the um, responses to those challenges, 
how can policy be written in a way that takes those into consideration and protects against potential uses in other parts of the world or regions that where this doesn't serve or says, okay, this is what our situation is now. But if I look to other parts of the world, I can see things that are happening. We need to make sure that our policy is thoughtful about those so that it could hold up to those kinds of things in the future. Another thing that's really important on the research side, and these primers look at, they also say, what does the research to date around the world tell us? Um, I felt as a researcher that was needed at this at this moment more than more even than just more research is to say we've got to make sense of what's out there and what's missing. In many cases, what's missing is research that's outside the U.S., the global north, Western Europe. How do we um, um, understand the pluralistic natures of society is to do more research in those spaces, too. The U.S. news media has faced a lot of the same challenges as Canada, including the rise of so-called news deserts in different communities. I've seen one statistic, for instance, that 225 counties in the United States no longer have a local newspaper. But my sense, Amy, is that it hasn't reached the same level of political attention as it has in Canada, where it's a major issue with the government introducing various policies to support the sector. What do you think might be behind the different responses between the two countries? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, well, I don't follow the discussion in Canada as closely as in the U.S., but I would say it has certainly gained attention in the U.S. It, it is being talked about a lot. Um, there is less government response, though there are government conversations, there are proposals um, that have been put forward for ways the government might might get involved. I think there's less orientation towards that um, in the U.S. and there than there would be in Canada, um, just foundationally. But it's there are a lot of conversations, and there are um, entities that are really working to address it. Um, there's more on the philanthropic side that's being done in the U.S. than I think is likely being done in Canada. Um, it's a the philanthropy element of, of support for news is is quite substantial here. And um, I think that's that's not seen as much in Canada or some other parts of the world. Let me ask a penultimate question. What should people expect from CNTI in 2024? A lot more of what we <laughs> kicked off with. Uh, I am so um, thrilled at the kind of response that CNTI has gotten. The range of people, organizations, entities that have really expressed the support for the kind of mission that CNTI has taken on, the need for an entity that is looking globally, that is working to be collaborative, that is trying to bring together research with policy discussions, with journalists and technology. So I am really looking forward to collaborating with a lot of other organizations and and um, being able to produce more original research as we get through sort of the primers, holding more convenings, working on really being able to um, use that horrible term of scaling up. I would just say as I move to the final question, I would encourage Hub listeners to check out the CNTI website. As Amy says, it's already full of valuable information across the various subjects we've talked about. And I look forward to seeing that 
information build as we move into the end of uh, the organization's first full year, which leads, as I say, to my final question. Based on work that you've been doing over the past several months, are you more or less optimistic about the future of news? I think one needs to be optimistic, uh, and I am. I think one of the things that brings me the most optimism, again, is the strong support for the mission of CNTI, for the role uh, and recognition of the importance of fact-based news to the public as a way of securing functioning societies. I think we've we've witnessed a, a, a greater awareness of the role that news plays in society and the importance of having fact-based news um, produced, delivered, and accessible to the publics around the world. It's been a great conversation. I've been glad to speak with Amy Mitchell, the Executive Director of the Center for News, Technology, and Innovation. Amy, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Hub Dialogues featuring content for our Future of News series. For more on the series, go to our website, www.thehub.ca. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous and ongoing support of the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Meta is a contributor to the Hub's Future of News series. We thank them for their ongoing support. Today's program host was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. The Hub Dialogues are produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.